Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, February 11th. On the show this week, the government introduces new rules for pipelines, insisting they'll protect the environment and grow the economy. But opposition on the left and the right argue the rules will do neither. We'll talk to Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. Then, the pipeline Pino battle heats up at West over the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion. Federal officials are in talks with the B.C. government, but is it time for more than talk? United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney weighs in. Plus, food for thought with new mom and NDP MP Nikki Ashton, breaking bread and talking sleep deprivation over Greek delicacies. But first... The feds introduced their long-awaited environmental bill last week, which they say will protect the environment by basing decisions on future pipelines, on science, indigenous traditional knowledge, and more public consultations. The bill will eliminate the National Energy Board and create one assessment agency to size up all future projects. The minister will also have more power over the process. But critics on the left and right aren't happy. There's more discretionary powers given to the minister. And the other thing is that, of course, the minister has a right to basically kill a project before it ever gets to the impact assessment process. What we're looking at is sort of a mad scientist went into a lab, took Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau and merged them together to create a a new sort of Frankenstein-like government, and I'm not sure it can walk. And joining me now is Federal Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. Minister McKenna, great to have you on the great show. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to drill down. You made a big announcement last week, obviously, overhauling the process by which new resource projects can be approved. I wanted to drill down onto one specific aspect of it, and that is that uh, the new assessment pro- uh, process will take into account the impact on climate change targets of those proposed projects. Does that mean that the assessment process will also take into account downstream and upstream emissions for projects? So, I mean, there's... so. First of all, everything we do has to be consistent. So we spend a year negotiating a climate plan with the provinces and territories. So obviously, when we approve projects, you need to you need to be considering that. Um, but but the most important thing, I, I know there's a lot of focus on upstream, downstream. It's really a project has to overall fit within our climate plan. And so in the context, let's take Alberta. Alberta is a great example because the government of Rachel Notley she announced the first ever hard cap on emissions from the oil sands, and she did it standing with industry. She's with indigenous peoples, with environmentalists. So we know that projects in the oil sands have to fit in that hard cap. So that's good, so that we already have that, and she's provided a lot of certainty to business by doing that. So really, it's overall figuring out how are, you know, by provinces, how, uh, by projects, how are these going to fit in our plan? And so what we've said is we need to do a strategic assessment on climate change. So really drill down, because we have a 2030 target, and we have, you know, a plan to get there but it's harder to know you know when you have project by project are they going to fit in that so are you saying that any project proposed like a pipeline that originates in Alberta would be okay because of that hard cap well as long as they fit in the hard cap of uh, you know hard cap on emissions you know that's that's provided certainty but in can that a particular pipeline fit province into that cap if you're not only taking into account the emissions generated by its operation and construction, but also anything that happens with the product after it goes through the pipeline. Well, I mean, you need to think about it. I mean, you can get really technical on this, but when you think about... But I think about, for producers, it's, it's not technical. It's well, big, I mean, we, we approved... So, take example, uh, you can take the example of TMX. 
we approved it. We believe it fits within our climate plan. And so that's what you do. You just need to make that assessment and provide certainty to business. Business wants certainty. I mean, that's why putting a price on pollution uh, and giving, you know, having people know what the price is, uh, they can find out ways to reduce emissions. So it's all part and parcel. Um, we, we announced an oceans protection plan. Like, we understand the environment and the economy go together. And so you need to demonstrate that in everything you do. And we've taken that approach across government, working with provinces, whether it's Alberta uh, or Ontario, Quebec, um, you know, across the country, people understand got to you got to you know protect your environment you got to take action on climate change and you want good projects to go ahead ultimately uh, you know your discretionary powers increase with this bill but also the, at the end of the day it's still a political decision about whether or not this project goes ahead how does that provide more certainty for some a company that wants to build a pipeline so we've been really clear about what the rules are going to be under the previous government they gutted the environmental assessment regime and decisions were really made on politics and that's not even what project proponents want like if you're in business you actually want to know that you're going to do make decisions based on science based on evidence that you're going to ensure that you know there's been consultation with communities and the timelines are going to be clear so this is exactly what we announced yesterday we've said that we're going to be working um, with industry, we're going to be working with provinces, making sure our timelines. When a province is also involved, the timelines uh, are set. That they, we tell, you know, we work with them to the the engagement with indigenous peoples. And then once you've done that, so you've done that work. When they drop the project to be reviewed, um, we've said there's going to be stricter timelines. They're going to be shorter, and then we're going to come to a decision. And for hard decisions, yes, they will be uh, end up on either my desk or it could end up in cabinet. And that's the right thing. At the the end of the day, we are responsible to Canadians. We're elected, and we need to make decisions in the national interest. I think you've seen, you know, challenges right now. We are. My goal is to bring people together and making sure you've got making decisions on the best information possible. But realistically, I know that the goal is, like you said, to bring people together to consult more widely. Even if you are able to do so, like what we're witnessing right now, realistically, is there any ever a chance that everyone's going to be on board? Like, you, you know, you, maybe you get it approved, and just like it's happening right now with Kinder Morgan, but there will still be ardent opponents. And right now, those opponents are preventing a pipeline from being built. So, how does this? How does how does this overall offer anything? I guess, better than the current reality? Um, well, so you need to bring folks together. And so if you actually do the work at the beginning, and good, smart businesses do this already. They go out and talk to communities. They you know, work with Indigenous peoples. They enter into impact benefit agreements. This didn't happen in the previous government. So the previous government made a system that, in theory, was you know, easier because you didn't think about the environment. But they couldn't get projects through, ironically, because in the 21st century, you need to understand that the environment and the economy go together. But with all due respect, with Kinder Morgan, your government did consider the environment, and the project still isn't going through. Yeah, and we approved the project. But it's not getting built. It, well, you know what? We're having discussions right now with British Columbia, and let me be really clear. This project is within our jurisdiction. Pipelines are within the jurisdiction. We understand the concerns that folks have on the coast. And this is a twinning. So the, there's already a pipeline there. So the concerns about protecting the coast and protecting the oceans already exist. That's why we announced an oceans protection plan. And I know in my job, there are always going to be some folks that you know don't want any project to go ahead. 
um, no matter what. And then there are other people who want every single project to go ahead, no matter what the environmental impact. We need a system that builds confidence. And when you have confidence, you're not going to get everyone on side, but people are going to feel heard. And then you're going to be able to go ahead and, and build these, these uh, you know, the, you have these projects go ahead. And I will say, though, once again, with, uh, with the Kinder Morgan pipeline, that was approved. And that was approved through a regulatory process. We brought in extra consultation, uh, extra with the public, with indigenous peoples. We considered science. We announced an oceans protection plan. And we also, answer, we also announced a, a climate plan. And it's in that context that we made the decision to, that it was in the national interest. And that's what the federal government needs to do. We need to bring folks together. And ultimately, we need to think about jobs. And there are good jobs in BC, good jobs in Alberta, good jobs across the country associated with this project. And also, we're creating economic growth while protecting our environment. Really quickly, though, what if the talks with BC don't produce any tangible result? What if they continue their threat to cap bitumen flowing through its borders? What's your next move? Uh, well, it's well within our jurisdiction, and I don't want to speculate, but I think we're going to get there. We have officials there. I had conversations with my, Brit with my British Columbian counterpart. Um, so you think they will withdraw that threat? I think that it's really important that we move forward with this project. That, as I say, but do you good think jobs, that they will withdraw the threat? Uh, I think I, I am certainly extremely hopeful. Um, I think that, that we're all better together. Um, and there, you know, British Columbia often wants other projects that, you know, that we, we need to be figuring out a way that we can provide certainty to business, that you can invest in Canada, that you can invest in British Columbia, that good projects that go through a robust process can get approved and can actually go ahead. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thanks Great. for your time, Minister. Thank you. Appreciate it. As the pipeline battle heats up between Alberta and B.C., federal officials are talking to both provinces to try and end the impasse. But is talk enough? Joining me now is United, United I'm sorry, Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney. Mr. Kenney, great to have you back Great to be show. back to Ottawa. Thank you. Before we get to pipelines, and I sure do want to talk to you about that, uh, kind of a, a very serious matter. Uh, one of your former MLAs, he resigned last week, Don McIntyre. Mm -hmm. uh, it came, the publication ban on his charges have, have been released, and he has been charged with sexual assault and interference. Were you aware of the allegations he was facing at any time? No. First, I'm just deeply disturbed by the nature of these allegations, and I hope that justice will be done. We learned about the allegations uh, on last week when uh, he informed our House leader that he was resigning from the legislature, had heard nothing about it before then. I uh, instructed our legal counsel to work with uh, media to lift the publication ban in court because we th think there's a public interest in transparency, and, and I, I, we're thinking about the victim, hoping for her to have strength and courage and uh, hoping that justice will be done. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Um, let me move on to the, the subject du jour for Alberta and much of the country right now. Pipelines, getting them approved, specifically the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion. I know that you've criticized the federal government for their lack of leadership, as I think you've termed it mm -hmm. and others, uh, in the past few weeks and, and overall on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. I want to read a few quotes from them this week, though. Uh, the Prime Minister said, we're going to ensure that pipeline gets built because it is in the national interest. It's going to create good jobs. Catherine McKenna, the Environment Minister, said, we need this project to go ahead. Jim Carr, the Natural Resources Minister, said, no province can impinge on the national interest. That is the role of the Government of Canada. Why is that not enough? Words are not enough. We need action. What's happening, the, the NDP in British Columbia has decided to violate our Constitution and the Economic Union, which was a key guarantee of Confederation, by threatening arbitrarily to block the shipment of Alberta's most important product. Um, our provinces cannot interfere with uh, domestic trade, 
And inter the regulation of intra-provincial pipelines is totally a federal jurisdiction. So I, I appreciate the federal government saying they support the pipeline that they approve, but they need to back it up with action. They should go to court and seek an order suspending the per prospective application of these um, anti-free trade regulations. They could also use a special power in Section 92 of the Constitution to say this is against the national interest. So we're asking them to move from words to action. Is BC actually violating the Constitution by making that threat? All they've said at this point, and I take your point, but all they've said is that we're consulting on the idea of capping bitumen. They haven't actually done anything. So How is talk unconstitutional? Well, talk actually in this case, their threat is has a real-world consequence. It's not just some uh, it's vague consultation. Here's the thing. Kinder Morgan, the pipeline sponsor, is spending millions of dollars a day waiting. There's already been a one-year delay since approval. Their shareholders and investors do not have infinite patience. The strategy of the anti-development forces, including the B.C. government, uh, is to delay this thing to death. And it's by creating an, an uncertainty, legal reviews, consultations, uh, municipal councils like Burnaby trying to uh, deny permits for uh, uh, roads. All of these things together will lead to endless delays and jeopardize the whole project. If that happens, Vasi, we're talking about the inability to ship our oil around the world. That means we only sell to the Americans at about a 25 percent, 30 percent discount. That's in potentially tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth that we don't get as Canadians. Even if they use Section 9210, uh, though, my understanding is that doesn't relieve them of their obligations to Indigenous peoples, and they could therefore still be fighting those claims, which would then still continue to right. delay the pipeline. So, so is that even the magic bullet? Well, it's, it's certainly a response to the uh, threat of the B.C. government to violate the Constitution and our economic union. Um, but it, with respect to Aboriginal people, let's remember that every single First Nation along the actual pipeline route down to uh, the coast supports Kinder Morgan. That pipeline has been there, by the way, for six decades with a safe record. It fuels much of the economy of the Lower Mainland. This is not a new pipeline. It's just an expansion of something that's been there, uh, an expanded pipeline using the most modern technology. Why do we forget about the voices of pro-development Aboriginal communities who want these to be partners in these projects to move their... They're not causing the delays. Well, but this is an opportunity for them to move from poverty to prosperity. I say, we yes, let's cons always consult, but let's also consult the pro-development Aboriginal communities who happen to be the majority. When your party was in charge of the federal government, uh, you guys also couldn't get a pipeline bill. Did you ever consider using those constitutional? To powers? be fair, when Stephen Harper was prime minister, four pipelines were approved and built within Canada. In terms of coastal pipelines, we approved the the Northern Gateway. Pipeline that Justin Trudeau then subsequently vetoed arbitrarily with the Northern ta Tanker Ban. Uh, Energy East was applied for only at the very end of the Harper government, and Justin Trudeau's government has effectively killed it by getting the National Energy Board to get into the business of carbon emissions, creating huge uncertainty. It was Barack Obama who vetoed uh, Keystone XL after uh, the uh, Alberta NDP brought in their carbon tax, and now we've got a BC NDP government threatening Kinder Morgan. So I, we did what we could, uh, and now it's up to this government to exercise leadership. But even with Northern Gateway, for example, I mean, it was approved by your government, and it couldn't get built. It faced enormous opposition. Do you do you really feel that you would have done? You know, you could have ensured yes. that it got you know, built, and how? I can tell you, I was Minister of Employment. I went up to Northern BC, met with uh, uh, chiefs and First Nations, uh, provided additional funding for training so their people could work on these projects and benefit economically from them. There was tremendous but support. But it still never got built. Because Justin Trudeau vetoed it, Northern Tanker Traffic Ban did so arbitrarily. But we need, as Canadians, to understand this is existential for our future. Like, we've got 
Western countries, Greece, for example, going bankrupt because they can't afford their, to pay for their debts. If we want to avoid that future, we need to develop in an environmentally responsible, responsible way our resources. We're talking about a trillion dollar plus asset in our oil and gas. And if we don't ship that to global markets, guess what? Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Venezuela will. I say Canada, with the highest environmental human rights and labor standards of any major oil producer in the world, should be displacing or at least competing uh, with the oil generated by those conflict regimes. I have to leave it there, unfortunately, but thanks for your time, Mr. Thank Kennedy. You, Appreciate it. Just a few blocks south of Parliament Hill in the heart of Ottawa's downtown core sits Mystico. Serving traditional Greek fare, it's a restaurant NDP MP Nikki Ashton frequents often. And it's where we find her today. Okay, thank you so much for joining us for Food for Thought. It's nice to see you. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Normally, I always, the first question I ask in these is like, why here? But it's a kind of obvious <laughs> for me and you. This yes. is a Greek restaurant in Ottawa. There are not too many of them. Mm -hmm. And you come here a lot, you were saying. Yeah, and I, I order in from here, and, and uh, you know, my first language is Greek. It's uh, my background. Uh, I have a lot of family in Greece, and so eating from here, when I'm away from home especially, makes me feel at home. And is the food, you, do you find it very, like, traditional? Do you find it authentic? Because I know we're pretty judgy, Greek, <laughs> Greek's judgy, I know, but especially with On our food, food yeah. yeah, and everything else, but yeah, food. Yeah, yeah no, I, it's it's delicious. Uh, it's, uh, it reminds me of the food that my yaya makes, and my grandmother, and uh, um, you know, and it's healthy too, which in Ottawa and with this life is not always easy to get. Uh, and you know, in the name of the restaurant, Mistico, which means secret, so it's kind of a secret in Ottawa. And, and uh, there are no secrets in Ottawa, but yes, <laughs> yeah, that's true. This one's one. <laughs> okay, so uh, we both started off with uh, Greek salad. You have the village salad, which is mm -hmm. explain to our viewers, <laughs> the non-Greek viewers, what that is. Yeah, so it's known as Horiatiki, which means village salad, and and this is the authentic Greek salad. Uh, you know, a lot of people that have traveled to Greece will have had it. So it's it's tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, and uh, feta, and olives, of course. Um, so it's uh, pretty basic, oh, and onions. Uh, so it's pretty basic, but with the olive oil and oregano, it is the most delicious so thing ever. In For fact, sure. just smelling it right now is really I know, really it's great. good. It sucks that we have to wait to eat it. <laughs> We've got spanikopitas, a spinach pie, which mm -hmm. is pretty well known, also delicious. And you've got a couple other things. Yeah, it's uh, lukaniko, uh, often eaten in Greece. Very tasty sausage and excellent here at the restaurant. And tiro kafteri, which uh, people know it as a spicy uh, cheese dip. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, I love feta. I love tiro kafteri. And, and that sort of completes it all. Yeah. The dips are amazing. Always. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess I should start off by saying congratulations. So you're a new mom of twins. Tell me about uh, tell me about it and how they're doing. And mm -hmm. uh, well, it is intense, you know. I, uh, they were born on Halloween, so just uh, we're we're about three months in now, and uh, they're doing very well. Um, they are uh, right into the the sort of uh, uh, political work and public work. They went to their, their first public <laughs> event when they were 11 days old. Oh my God! Uh, so and they've they've hit the road uh, in the constituency with me. They've come to office hours. In fact, more people come to see the twins than me now uh, back home. Uh, obviously, people are quite happy. Happy to, to meet them, uh, and uh, just recently they came to uh, 
Parliament as it as it opened, uh, and it's very important for me to share this work and this life with my kids. Uh, but obviously, there's some major challenges as well, and 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 they definitely need to be addressed so that we can encourage and support, uh, particularly women and, and moms, uh, new moms, I would say, uh, that uh, that want to do political work as well. And I want to get into those challenges for sure, but just on the more personal side. Uh, you know, was there any, how, how nervous were you about having twins and carrying on the workload that you have or how much it might impact your life and, and how much has it changed your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big change, obviously. You know, sleep deprivation has definitely been a thing. I thought I knew what it meant to get a little bit of sleep before, but I really didn't until now. Uh, so that, you know, there's been adjustments, obviously, uh, traveling back and forth. Uh, you know, that's, uh, there's been a number of changes that have had to be made. Uh, but, uh, but I also really believe, uh, you know, I'm passionate about the work I do. Uh, and it's not nine to five work. You know, uh, um, you know the, the political work and certainly the way I see it is, is something that uh, you're invested in in a, in a bigger way. Uh, and it's, uh, and, you know, and I believe in the, the adage, the feminist adage, that the personal is political. And so a lot of what we live, uh, you know, connects to our political work. And that includes, you know, uh, raising kids, having a family, wanting good things uh, for our kids going forward, fighting for those things. And so I've, it's been important for me to engage my kids in, in this life that, uh, uh, that I lead and, and the work that I do and, and so that they also get to learn some of these values and, and, you know, and I can point back to when they were in question period or in the <laughs> house and, and say, you know, you were there and, and uh, fighting for the same things, although sometimes, you know, they're advocating for, you know, food and sleep and yeah. that kind of thing. At this point, I would hope. Yes, yeah. yeah, the essentials. Do you think that it will change your political priorities at all or has it even in the, in the few months that they've been here? I think it's just going to further reinforce, you know, when I, when I talk about uh, the struggle for uh, uh, good jobs for, for young people in our country. I mean, you know, I think about my kids now, what will be left for them? Uh, when I think about the fight for inequality, you know, what kind of opportunities will they have uh, as they get older? Uh, when I think about climate change, you know, what is the world, uh, you know, what, what kind of world are we leaving for them? And I don't want them to have uh, uh, fewer opportunities and certainly to grow up in an environment that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's being destroyed. So so, uh, so for me, it's about a reinforcement. One one area, though, I would say I'm, I'm certainly getting a, a very different vantage point now is childcare. Uh, it's a huge issue for parents across the country. Uh, with twins, it becomes even more of an issue. Uh, uh, and the fact that you know, in my workplace, unfortunately, we don't have access to childcare for infants, for example. Um, you know, it's a problem where I work. It's a problem where a lot of uh, moms and dads work, and, and that's something that definitely needs to be addressed. I want to ask you about that because we have we've touched on it on the show before, but for a lot of women. Our age, it's a. I imagine it's a big consideration when you're thinking about entering the political world. And there's a few factors. The first you mentioned that there isn't childcare, um, and, and the other is that there is no mat leave. Uh, so, what what do you think that does? Insofar as like, how did it affect you personally, knowing that that would be the case, and how has how is it affecting you today? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say, you know, first off, you know, I've been doing this work for almost 10 years now, and, and it was a thought in the back of my mind when I first ran, you know, what will happen when I want to have a family? Uh, and, uh, and sort of fast forward, you know, in those 10 years, uh, some things have changed, but really not fundamentally. We don't have parental leave. Our work is a bit unique. I mean, we work in the constituency, we work in Ottawa, uh, but we can't even have a formal recognition of the fact that, yeah, we have to take a bit of time out to be with our, our newborns, with our infants. Uh, that's not a possibility, and that needs to change. And added to that, you know, not without leave, 
if you have to be at work, who's taking care of your kids? Uh, you know, and, and, and many of us have said that we need childcare. Now, there is childcare if your kid is 18 months plus. So what do you um, do? If, but what do you do before that, right? What, what are you doing? Well, I'm I'm uh, leaning on uh, on family and friends for the time being, but uh, but I'm certainly pushing for a uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, they they ha they they love the kids, but uh, uh, but they also have uh, things happening in their lives, and, and they don't live here. Ottawa is not home. Northern Manitoba is. Um, I, I I want to be uh, able to yes share my kids with the people that love them, uh, but uh, uh, but we need. Uh, but what I'd love to be able to do here is access uh, you know services that are run by. Uh, professionals who are who are keen to pr uh, provide quality programming uh, for for little ones and 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 allow me to do my work of representation and allow other parents to do their work whether it's not just elected officials but also staff that work in, in Parliament as well uh, you know for me it's the fact that there isn't infant care and that there, that child care is deficient here uh, where I work is, is a sign of the kind of uh, the major gaps that exist across the country so why don't we set the bar high in Parliament uh, by offering quality services including like child care and, uh, and and do the same across the country too. I wanted to ask you when I when I was I remember when I was tweeting about this story and not just you but there's a minister who's pregnant etc. Um, I got a lot of sort of negative reaction to the idea of mat leave and a lot of people saying well they chose this we're paying them to represent us there why should they get any time off and I'm wondering what you think of that reaction and what your response to it would be. Mm -hmm. Well you know it, it's uh, first off I'd say that that Parliament and, and the system around it was was primarily designed by uh, old white men, uh, entirely designed by old white men, and so so the structures uh, uh, that exist, uh, you know, certainly fit into that frame. If we want a parliament that truly reflects the, reflects the population, uh, including women, including racialized folks, indigenous peoples, peoples living with disabilities, uh, we need to be prepared to uh, make adjustments to alter uh, the way it is. Many of jurisdictions particularly in Europe uh, have uh, you know overcome a number of barriers have, have, have shown political will to change the structures around their their parliaments uh, in order to be more inclusive uh, particularly in terms of gender we ought to be learning from them on that front uh, you know I want a parliament that looks like our country unfortunately right now 26% of MPs are women that's unacceptable when we're half the population so how do we make parliament more uh, uh, inclusive of women for example it is recognizing the need for uh, some sort of parental leave and it might not, it might not look the same as, as uh, the, the broader parental leave um, but absolutely we it has to be uh, different uh, but but let's explore it we're not doing that right now let's also look at ways that women and and you know moms and dads can bring their little ones to work since, since they don't have that leave uh, that to me is is uh, uh, you know it's something that's possible and it's necessary if we're going to make Parliament more reflective of who we are. When we talk about women in politics, lately especially, we're, we're, there's another big subject that we're talking about, that is sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. How have you been processing what we've seen unfold sort of over the past six months south of the border, but now over the past few weeks here in Canada? Mm -hmm. I think we're living in a very historic time. Uh, you know, I, I'm... Uh, uh, it's it's empowering to see the way in which the Me Too movement has has uh, uh, crisscrossed uh, the continent, the world, uh, and I'm I'm glad to see it reach politics as well. Uh, you know, there's no question that sexual harassment is rampant in uh, uh, you know on the political scene. Uh, you know, when when have you, you come have, across uh, it in any 
way, shape, or form? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think any uh, woman, particularly young woman, that's been doing this uh, this work for any length of time, uh, is you know will have will have experienced it. Uh, and um, and it, and it's obviously particularly bad when when uh, it's a question of power imbalance. So for many women that work as staff, uh, we've you know we've heard some some pretty uh, uh, disturbing um, uh, experiences. So you know I, I really I have tremendous admiration for the women that are coming forward. Uh, whether it's on harassment or even assault, uh, and uh, and I also uh, applaud uh, you know the kind of leadership we're seeing uh, you know from men who are saying this has to stop. Um, you know, it's women uh, you know show tremendous courage in calling it out. Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of work to change the culture, but the reality is we need men to do that as well, and and we have a lot of a lot of work to do. How big of a challenge do you think it is for political parties? We see every political party right now, literally the NDP, the Conservatives, and the Liberals sort of figure figuring out how to deal with it as a political party. What are your, I guess, concerns for how your party might end up dealing with it? Well, I mean, it's uh, there are some processes in place. I think there's room for improvement. Uh, you know, what we need to have is, is uh, uh, survivor-driven processes where we respect uh, uh, you know, survivors desire to come forward uh, and uh, and make a process uh, that's uh, uh, where they can remain anonymous, where they can share uh, their experience uh, without any fear of repercussion, uh, and uh, and ultimately we, we need to make sure that there that in cases where there has been uh, uh, where we find uh, there to have been harassment or even assault that there that there be repercussions that we don't. Um, you know, uh, shove it under the rug, uh, or say, "Well, you know, that's how it is." Uh, you know, that 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 time is, has passed. Uh, we know of the whisper campaigns that uh, uh, that occur in, in, in political spaces. Um, we need to uh, make sure that there are processes in place that they moves beyond the whisper, and that and that we take decisive action. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask you about your uh, leadership bid and. Uh, you've obviously had some time to reflect now. Any any regrets about how it all went, or uh, absolutely not? I, I'm 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 really proud of the work that we did. Uh, it was uh, tremendously energizing to cross the country and really build a movement for change. Uh, our campaign put forward some bold ideas that pulled other campaigns to share those ideas. Ultimately. Uh, we energized a tremendous number of young people, uh, many of whom have been disillusioned by politics, uh, and and but engage in other ways. Uh, and and I'm really, um, you know, I really think that we set a path forward that, uh, um, you know, that will push the NDP in a, in a more um, uh, progressive direction, a, a more bold direction. Uh, and I certainly will continue to to, to be a push. Uh, a, a, for that, uh, and uh, um, you know, and I look forward to the work that we have ahead of us. You know, whether it's on uh, taking on growing inequality in our country, whether it's taking on climate change, that's what we were doing in the leadership, and that's what we need to continue to do moving forward. Do you ever think you'll do anything other than politics? Oh yes. <laughs> like, do you see a life beyond this? Uh, I do. I, I, I think I think we all have to, just for your own sanity. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, before I was in politics, I had the opportunity to teach at our uh, university college back home. Uh, I was involved in research. I am working on my PhD, so I uh, certainly would love to teach uh, down the line or be involved in in social justice work in other ways. Um, What's that your was, PhD uh, in? It's in peace and conflict studies, yeah, and with a focus on feminism, so millennial feminism, for that matter. So, so it's uh, so there are other things that uh, um, uh, that I I see the possibility of doing down the line, but it's all connected. My passion for human rights, for social justice, 
for justice more broadly. Uh, it's, uh, it's a thread that, that connects uh, all of us, the twins, uh, the political work, and, and whatever might come after. Do you ever see yourself running for leader again? Would you rule it out? Or? Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't see that. Uh, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very busy with all sorts of other things now. Uh, but, but like I said, what drove me to run for leader in the first place, the issues, um, the priorities that, that continues to drive uh, uh, me every day in the work that I do. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to continue that work as Member of Parliament and, and as part of our, of our team here in, uh, uh, on Parliament Hill. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, Ashi. Let's eat. <laughs> Amazing. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, you can head to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.